to be opening your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Go to Matthew and go two books back. I appreciate Neil covering Haggai last week. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. One is old and one is young. Haggai is old and Zechariah was young. Thank you. As you will remember, there were nine prophets that came before the Babylonian captivity, warning the people, return to God, return to the Lord, and they didn't. And so they were subject to Babylonian captivity. After the Babylonian captivity, when Zerubbabel and others returned to build the temple, there were three prophets that appeared after the return to Jerusalem, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. Our focus tonight is on the book of Zechariah. It's 14 chapters. I wonder how many of you have read the book of Zechariah recently, or if ever at all. It's not considered one of those fun reads, or one of those easy reads. It is, as one author put it, a rare jewel in the Bible full of splendor, rich lore of messianic reference, and it is an almost forgotten book. It is filled with stately phrases and captivating vocabulary that announce or anticipate the Messiah's arrival. Not even Isaiah has as much to say about the coming Messiah as Zechariah does. In Zechariah 13.7, we find him referenced as the shepherd of the sheep, mirroring what's said in Mark 14.27 and 1 Peter 2.25 and Hebrews 13.20. We find him in chapter 6, verse 13, being called the coming prince of peace, echoing what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9.6 and what Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 20. Probably, if in studying the Bible, only Ezekiel and Revelation are matches for studying the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has a style that is all his own. Obviously, he wrote this inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he has a, he has a style that's very moral, that's very mighty, and it's very messianic. I encourage you to read this book. This is a book you will never outgrow. Because this is a book that looks forward to the coming Christ and to the coming church. As you remember, when the people got back from Babylonian captivity, Zechariah was one of the people at the dedication. He was optimistic. He teamed up with Haggai, the older prophet. And from 520 B.C. to about 518 B.C., their vision was to rebuild the temple, which had fallen into disuse, had not been completed 16 years earlier. The people were filled with lethargy, indifference, discontent, unconcern. Many churches suffer from those same maladies today. We sometimes do no better than they did. 
But Zechariah and Haggai came among the people and they stirred them up. And from 520 to 516, the temple was finished. Remember in Ezra when the people came among them and they told them that, you know, we're not Israelites, we're not Hebrews, but let us build, let us help you build the temple. And they sowed discord. And so the temple building fell into that period of lethargy. Zechariah remembered God. And God remembered Zechariah. If you see from your notes, uh, Zechariah means remembered of the Lord or remembered by the Lord. And I thought tonight as we studied together that we would look first at the man, Zechariah. Secondly, we would look at the prophetic products that he produced as a prophet and a priest. And then what preaching values, what teaching values can Zechariah and the study of Zechariah bring to us today? Did everybody get a handout? We have enough? Okay, good. Zechariah was a man dedicated to God. His vision of the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt in many places symbolizes the church in the New Testament as it's established. Only Isaiah, along with Zechariah, were more, Isaiah and Zechariah were the more, were the most messianic prophets. And when we talk about prophets, we talk about prophets and priests, and we use the term prophet, priest, and king. Obviously, he was not a king, but he was a prophet, and he was a priest. If you go to Nehemiah 12 and read the first 16 verses of Nehemiah 12, you'll see his name mentioned, Zechariah, his father. His father, Edo, was a priest also. And many times people confuse prophet and priest and, and how that delineation is made. So remember that a priest is someone who goes to God and offers something up. He's a, he's a priest in that he offers up sacrifice for the people. A prophet has heard a message from God. And in hearing that message of God, it is his responsibility to give it to the people. Not taking anything away, not adding anything to, but always giving just exactly what the message from God means with no alteration. And so the man Zechariah is a man full of integrity. He's a, a man full of zeal for God. And this is why I said initially that Zechariah always remembered God, and God always remembered Zechariah. So this prophetic product that he's produced, that is the book of Zechariah, was entrusted to him. This challenging book of 14 chapters, this challenging material. Probably chapters 40 through 48 of the book of Ezekiel, the last six chapters of the book of Daniel, and the book of Zechariah are the hardest in the Old Testament to read and to study and to understand. And the more you study those three books, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, the more you are reminded how little you know. And as I read the book of Zechariah time and time again over the last couple of weeks when I was given this assignment, I truly came to understand how little I know. But the book of Zechariah is, is a rich, rich, 
prophetic history of Jesus and his coming messiahship, of his sacrifice for men, of the ultimate, his ultimate death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we begin to look at the book, you probably want to just go chapter by chapter with me. I'm not going to have 30, I have 30 minutes to exegete 14 chapters. Ain't no way. We'd we never get out of the first chapter. So let's just look at these 14 chapters as kind of an overview. Chapter 1 is a call to return to God. The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, and I will return to you. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If we move away, it is not God who has moved, but it's us who's moved away from him. And we're more prone to move away from him when we take our eyes off the cross. If we keep our eyes on the cross and keep focused on Jesus and what he said in his life here, what he did in his life here, how he acted, how he treated people, we're more likely to be more Christ-like. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And then in chapter 1, we see the vision of a horseman, and it's an apocalyptic vision. If we look, uh, if we look further down in there, we'll see the vision of the, of the four horses and the craftsmen. Um, these, are, these are visions that Zechariah is privileged to see. If we go to chapter 2, we'll see the vision of the man with a measuring line. He's measuring the city of Jerusalem. He's measuring the width, and he's measuring the length. And there's an angel who talks with him, going in and going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. And he said, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and the livestock in it. For I says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. And of course we see, <clears throat> when we talk about that wall of fire, we're reminded of what? Reminded of the, the exodus, the children of Israel, the wall, the, the column of fire, and the column of, the, the column of smoke by day and by night. And so flee to the land of the north, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. Remember that not all of the people who left the Babylonian captivity, all of the Hebrew nation, all returned to the land of promise. They were scattered to the four winds. Some went east, some went west. This is why when Paul began to teach and preach in the New Testament, you see people that were already Jewish in these various cities. They had come after Babylonian captivity and had taken up residence there. As the Greeks, as the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and, and moving through all those, you know, these people had taken up residency there. They'd become citizens of these countries but they maintain their, their Jewish heritage. And so chapter 3, or chapter 2, <clears throat> we have the man with the measuring line measuring the city of Jerusalem. Interestingly, in chapter 4, or chapter 3, 
we have a vision of Joshua. He showed me Joshua the high priest. Now, this is not the Joshua that you sometimes think of. There are three Joshuas that I can think of in the Bible. The three are Joshua who took over from who? Moses. That's one Joshua. And then there's this Joshua who's the high priest. And then there's another Joshua who shares a common name in the New Testament. Who's that? It's Jesus. And he is the Joshua. He is the Jesus that is the root. He is the branch, as Zechariah will refer to him. He is the branch. He is the one. In this instance, <clears throat> in this instance, Joshua the high priest, notice, how is he dressed? Verse 3 of chapter 3. Joshua is clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. What is, symblemat- what is emblematic of him standing before, standing up before him in filthy garments? What does that represent? His sin. He's covered in sin, just as we are. We're covered in filthy garments. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him. Verse 4. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity. I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, the angel of the Lord is mentioned many times in Old Testament writings. Who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? He's the messenger of God. He's very active in the Old Testament. Who could be the angel of the Lord? You say what? Say what you think. It won't be. It might not be right, but I'm, it's, it's at least you're thinking. What? <clears throat> it is the pre-incarnate Christ. Excuse me. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. So any time that we see, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, Jesus didn't appear till he appeared in a, in a manger. And then he grew up and he did this mission work for a few years and then he was crucified and he raised from the dead and went back to heaven. That, that's, how they, that's how they categorize the Christ. He is the, he is the, second, of the de- he's the second member of the deity. He is the angel of the Lord. Anytime you read in the Old Testament about the angel of the Lord, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. He's been around since the beginning. He was there. Read, read, read Genesis 1. He's there. He's there in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who troubled, who moves on the who moves on the waters, who hovers above the waters in Genesis 1. But Jesus has been there. Jesus is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the messenger from God. And notice that he is standing, he is standing beside Joshua. He's standing beside him. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now he's speaking for his father. If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the what? The branch. Who is the branch? It's Christ. Christ is the branch. And so as we look at Joshua in this chapter, in this short chapter that we have on this, this is, this is, this is more, of that, more of that pre-looking for the Messiah. This is, what's, this is the first introduction that we have to Christ and his coming. So if we go to chapter 4 
Uh, in chapter 4, we look at the vision of the golden lampstand. Now, in the tabernacle, there was the golden lampstand. What do we, what do most people say, most scholars say, that that golden lampstand represents? What does a lampstand give off? What is Christ? He's the of the world. He's the blank of the world. He's the light of the world. So in Old Testament times, in the tabernacle, this was the light of God. This was the the, the candlestick, the lampstand. It was the light. In this case, most scholars believe that this golden lampstand is the light to complete the rebuilding of the temple. The light to rebuild the temple. And the olive trees that he talks about in the second part of this chapter, uh, or in chapter, I thought it was in chapter 4. Yeah, chapter 4 down near the bottom, he talks about the olive trees. These are, these are the various leaders. He talks about the leaders. He talks about Zerubbabel. Uh, not by might, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent, has sent me to you. It's an interesting verse in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, and, and sometimes... I wonder if when people get off to the left or to the right, they, don't, they forget this verse. For who has despised the day of small things? It's never big things that cause a marriage to implode. It's always little things. Who has despised the little things? It's not always the big things. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's little things that cause people to leave the church. Well, somebody said something that hurt my feelings, and I'm not going back there. For who has despised the day of little of small things? And so, in chapter six, or in chapter five, we see we see two uh, we see two things uh, going on in chapter in chapter five: uh, the flying scroll and the vision of a woman in a basket. And these both are uh, these are both apocalyptic visions of sin. Uh, this is the curse that goes out over the whole face of the earth. Every thief shall be expelled, according to the side, this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. So again, it's a scroll written on the front and the back. If you're studying Revelation on Sunday morning, you know those scrolls are written on the front and the back. And this is an early reference to that same sort of thing. It's, 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 this, it's the curse of sin. The angel talks to him and came out and says, Lift your eyes and see what, uh, is it, what it is that goes forth. Chapter 5, verse 5. What is it? It's a basket that is going forth. There is a resemblance throughout the earth. Here's a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. And then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And so I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, which when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. And so what we see here, uh, a flying scroll written front and back, and these women, the woman in the basket, uh, representative, of, uh, representative of sin. Chapter 6, vision of the four chariots. And again, chapter 6, verse 12, we're introduced to that same phrase again. Um, in in uh, verse 12 of chapter 6, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For his place shall he, he for his place he shall branch out, 
and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, here, we're not talking about the temple of the Lord. What are we talking about? This is apocalyptic writing. And so with apocalyptic writing, he's talking about the church. This is the, this is the temple that he's going to reference throughout this. They're, not, they're rebuilding the temple now, but Zechariah is talking about something far in the future when the church is established. And so he's saying this branch is going to build the temple of the Lord. Christ, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's all three. He sits on the throne. He shall be a priest on his throne. He shall be a council of peace. Shall be between them both. And so... He goes on to talk about the fact that even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. In other words, the temple is not going to be just for the Jewish people. The new temple that the Messiah is bringing is going to bring people. We'll see it in a few minutes. It's going to bring people from the east and from the west. It's going to bring everyone to one place. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so we see this introduction of the branch. Remember now it's not the temple that, that Zechariah is talking about here. He's using apocalyptic language to talk about the coming church. In Hebrews 8.4, we, we get another vision or another, uh, uh, another writing uh, that's comparative to this. And so if, you have, if you're making notes in your Bible, Hebrews 8.4 is a corollary to 6.12. The premillennialists get this wrong. The premillennialists think that God, uh, that Jesus is going to come back and establish an earthly throne. His throne is not going to be on earth. His throne is not going to be, because in 2 Thessalonians it says we're going to meet him where? We'll meet him in the air. He'll never touch foot on this ground again. And so the, uh, the, the premillennialists, this is one of the, the best arguments against premillennialism. And so we see in chapter 7 and chapter 8, there's a discussion of, of fasting. And the people were supposed to, according to the law, on the seventh month and the tenth day, they were supposed to fast. Well, they had established 103 days of fasting. Wasn't in the Bible. Wasn't, wasn't what God had written down in the law. But they had 103 three days, Mondays and Thursdays. Some things the laws didn't even, the law, the law of Moses, something the law did not even command. They were absolutely just paying no attention. And many churches today are just like that, just like them. They're, they're, going, to have, they're going to have communion on Saturday night. They're going to have communion once a month. They're going to have this or they're going to have that. And they're just not paying any attention to what God says and what God wants them to do. And so the end of the visions there at the end of chapter 8, so chapters 1 through 8 really are, and I think I put that in your notes, chapters 1 through 8 are largely the symbolic chapters if you look at the, your notes there. Books have, the book has two major divisions. And so the largely symbolic goes through you know, the middle of chapter 8. But then chapters 9 through 14 now, now we're going to get into the heavily prophetic uh, uh, stuff with regard to Jesus. And so 9 through 14... Uh, we start to talk about the Messiah. The coming king of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is verse 9 of chapter 9. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a 
what? Riding on a donkey. How did Jesus come into Jerusalem? On a donkey. See, even the people, even the Hebrew people did not read this and understand it. They had no knowledge of apocalyptic literature. They expected Jesus to come into Jerusalem how? Like a king on the back of a stallion, ready to bring the Roman Empire to its knees to destroy it. They, had, they, they, missed, they missed it all. They missed the fundamental point. This is why Paul talks about the fact that all of this was a mystery. Okay? This was all, this was all, this was all a mystery to them. In 1 Peter, he talks about the fact that the angels desired to look into it. They didn't even understand it. And they desired to look into it to see what this, what this plan was, what this, what, this, what this church, this coming kingdom of God was going to look like. But all they had to do was go back and read Zechariah. So he comes into town lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so we talk about Messiah. We talk about Christ coming into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. In chapter 10, in chapter 10, we talk about the restoration and encouragement and the anger that's kindled against the shepherd. He will punish the goat's herd. And the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah. He will make it his royal house in the battle. And so as we talk about, as we talk in chapter 10 and then chapters 11 through 13, we see things again that point to uh, the, the coming of the Christ and what he will go through and what he will, uh, what he will, have, to, uh, what he will have to suffer. And so we see in chapter uh, 11 that he sold for 30 pieces of silver. And we see in chapter 12 that he's pierced. And we see in chapter 13 that old song, there's a fountain flowing from Jerusalem. There's a fountain free, it is for you and me. And so I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand. But he will eat of the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. Worthless shepherd he is, who leaves the flock. Everything that Christ is not, everything that Christ is not. And so he'd be he would be blinded. The Lord will give salvation. Uh, chapter 12. He will cause. He will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the feeble, those among them in that day that shall be like David in the house of David, that shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then we get down to chapter 12. We see the reference to to him who is pierced. Um, In verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. And so the angel of the Lord here speaking, he is the one who will be pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. And so what we see in chapter 14 then as we reach the end of the chapter is the one chapter probably that has more controversy than than anything else. And I really don't think there's that much controversy to it. It's the coming day of the Lord. So we have three options when we have the coming day of the Lord. What are our options with the coming day of the Lord? Well, we have the coming of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's already come, so that's not a viable option. 
we have the end times. So that may be what Zechariah is talking about here. Or we may talk about the destruction of Jerusalem that came about in 70 A.D. And so let's look at that list a little bit closer. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all of the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity. The remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it shall move to the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The light will diminish. Diminish. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Remember that phrase, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into the plain of Geba and Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel, Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And that shall be that whichever of the families of the earth did not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who does, who does not come up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do, do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the, on the bells of the horses. The pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them, and in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Flash forward from this point in time to 70 A.D. Titus, the Roman general, has surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege against the city. 
No one can come. No one can go. No one can escape. But for whatever reason, Titus Titus never wrote about it. He didn't know. Josephus did not know and could not tell us why. But for some inexplicable reason, Titus retreated away from the walls and left the city alone. Now you go and read Matthew 24. Flee to the mountains. It is no mistake that no Christians died during the siege of Jerusalem. They all escaped, just as Jesus said they would in Matthew 24. We do not know to this day, no scholar has been able to ever uncover in the writings of Titus or Josephus why he retreated. I know why. Because our Lord, our God, brings kings up and he takes kings down. He is the ruler of the universe. And Daniel tells us that he sets up rulers and he takes rulers down. He always has and he always will. So Mark 13, Matthew 24, all tell us about A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. It is said that there was not enough wood for all the crosses that people were crucified on, on the city walls. But not one Christian died because they all knew what Jesus had said in Matthew 24, and they made their escape. So from A.D. 33 to A.D. 70, the people knew. The people knew what to do. The signs were there. When Titus retreated, they saw their opportunity to escape. and they. So finally, what can we learn from Zechariah? All this predictive prophecy has been fulfilled. What is left for us as students of the Bible? What is left for us as teaching examples for those of you who get up in front of the congregation and, and preach the gospel? What, what's left for you? Well, first lesson that I see from this is Zechariah was moved along by inspiration. And inspiration is a powerful, powerful thing. God's name is called out 84 times in these 14 chapters. That's about six times per chapter. Zechariah knew that these, this message, these messages came from God. Haggai knew the same thing. If you read the book of Haggai, in that short, in that short uh, book, his name is mentioned 26 times, the Lord of hosts. And so the first lesson that I think we can glean from Zechariah is Zechariah's inspiration and the inspiration that we, can, that we can glean from the Holy Spirit writing the New Testament, writing the entire corpus of the Bible, as a matter of fact. So the second lesson we must always have an abiding respect for the Word of God. We must neither add to it nor take from it. We must always teach the plain, unvarnished truth as the Bible is written. You know, there are a lot of versions out there, and I have a series of lessons on versions of the Bible that you probably don't want to have in your home. There are some good versions, and there are some real stinkers out there. One of those is the Reader's Digest Bible. Do you realize that the Reader's Digest Bible has taken over 300,000 words out of the Bible? 
Yet if you talk to the authors of that book, they'll tell you, oh, well, we haven't changed or tampered with the doctrine in any way. 300,000 words. The third lesson I think we can get from, from game from Zechariah, in addition to inspiration and a, res- and a heightened respect for the word of God is this institution that we call the Church of Christ. They rebuilt the temple. There's a very interesting, and I was going to talk about it tonight, but I, I, I opted not to. There's a very interesting verse in Zechariah 8, verse 5. And if you turn over there just real quick, it's very interesting in that it talks about what most scholars believe is a discussion of heaven. This temple of God that we worship in, this church of Christ, this ecclesia, this body, it's not this building, it's the body of believers, are despised among many groups. Remember, despise the small things. And if you look over at chapter 8, down around verse 5, and starting in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women, and there's hope for me, old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the You ever been to a playground? Watch the kids play? Nobody has to teach a kid how to play. They know it innately. They learn. They play. Now, I'm not saying that playing in the worship, don't go away from here and say, well, he was talking about playing in church. I'm not talking about playing in church. I'm talking about those things that come to us naturally. Preaching God's word. Talking to others about Jesus. This is a view of heaven. This is Zachariah's view of heaven. Suffer the little children to come unto me. For such, there will be children playing in the streets. Playing together. Heaven's a wonderful place. But it's a prepared place for prepared people. I hope that someday... I can meet Zechariah in the by and by. And I can tell him how much his book means to me. I encourage you to go home and read Zechariah. Read those books. Read those chapters in Ezekiel. Read those chapters in Daniel. Read the hard stuff. Don't read the easy stuff. There's a lot that's, that's easily digestible in the Bible. There are, some hard, there are some hard things in the Bible. And I encourage you to step up and read those things. So next week, I think you'll probably close out with the book of Malachi, and then you'll be done with the Minor Prophets. Zechariah is a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book that tells us about what they saw as a mystery then. They did not know. They did not understand what the church would be. They did not understand that this kingdom of God was coming, that this branch would come, and that he would be pierced, and that his blood would flow, that cleansing flow from Calvary's mountain. They had no idea. Angels desire, Peter tells us, angels desired to look into it, but they didn't know. And we're the beneficiaries of that today. We know the mystery's been solved. It's Christianity. It's God's purpose to, for all of us to get to heaven. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Good Lord willing.